What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. All right, hello and welcome to Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. Thank you all for joining us. Today we'll be discussing the results of the pivotal 2020 presidential elections as well as its population health implications. Now, it took a little bit longer than we're accustomed to in the United States, but Joe Biden is now president-elect, and we'll have our very first woman vice president who's also Black and Asian American. This has obviously been a very contentious election. Some build this election as the battle for the soul of the nation. There have been more votes cast than ever before, and results have revealed a, a deeply polarized country. So while it seems that the will of the majority of voters will be heard, we're still not quite out of the woods yet. And there's been some unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud. All this midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is surging in a country that's still battling its original sins around race and racism. So a bit of a disclaimer about this podcast, our views do not reflect those of our beloved organization, the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. But as population scientists, we're often reticent to be political, but there's politics everywhere, especially regarding public health issues and population health. This year, even whether to the decision whether or not to wear a mask in the midst of a pandemic has become politicized. Other issues such as climate change, racial equity, and more are all inherently political. So we'll strive to be evidence-based without being overly partisan. I think there's also a major tension among many academics right now. Our country is so deeply polarized that science and truth have become politicized as well. Similarly, like I said before, evidence is sort of inherently partisan right now, especially in the middle of the country where I am right now in Missouri. So with that context in mind, we'll start our discussion and debrief about this pivotal election, what the results mean for population health. So the first question I have for our co-hosts is to describe how you feel. It took a little while to call this election. And as I mentioned before, there's still some contention over who actually won. <laughs> in addition to the ACA being argued in front of their Supreme Court. But all that being said, how do you feel right now? So I'll jump in. Uh, in 2020, I learned not to be too excited about much of anything and just like take it as they come. Um, but now I feel cautiously optimistic, um, but I think we have a really long road ahead. Like I'm happy about, or I'm optimistic about the results of the election, but you know, the current administration and the Republican leadership really went off the rails during the Obama administration and now the Trump presidency to foment and so such deep seated division in our country. And I think it's just gonna take a really, really long time before we kind of get back on track, not only in terms of policy, but ideology and like how people think about stuff. Um, 
And so I think it's going to be a long, tough road ahead. And like, it's the worst is not over yet. Right. And I think that we'd be kidding ourselves to think that it is. But what I have learned, I think, from not only the pandemic, quite frankly, but this election is that grassroots organizing is like truly like the bread and butter for so many progressive issues. And it's done a lot of good in this country. So I'm really following the lead of those organizers and those like community members who are kind of doing the work on the ground, as opposed to like really putting my hopes and dreams in these routine career politicians to really envision a future for our country. And so I'm hoping we can take that lesson moving forward. But I mean, who knows? We'll see. What about you, Mike? How are you kind of processing it all? What are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, I'm feeling relieved. Um, you know, like, I think I agree, like, it's not, it's kind of naive to think that this single act of uh, Austin Trump from the White House is gonna, you know, cure all these kind of like divisions and a lot of like the junk that uh, Republicans have been like spinning up um, uh, over the past like decade, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of hard to be too excited about like put in, in an administration that's headed up by two folks who uh, played such a visible role in maintaining systems of violence against black and brown folks that mm -hmm. a lot of our members like kind of study to like kind of let's show exactly how harmful all that was. Uh, but yeah, getting somebody in the office that's um, probably going to come up with a more kind of comprehensive, like kind of like strategy against COVID than telling us to drink bleach or, you know, someone that isn't proudly breaking apart brown families is definitely a step in the right direction to kind of, you know, get him back on track. It's yeah. the simple things, you know. It's yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First One things first. First <laughs> things first. Don't drink bleach. Exactly. Can, can that be an official uh, organization? Yeah, principal. Yeah. Principal. Yeah. <laughs> Don't drink bleach. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you all said. I mean, it certainly was a relief to me. Um, and it, it feels like I've seen those slogans. I'm sure you all have seen those too. Just any reasonable adult would do in 2020 right um and it, it seems like the the relief is there but also as as you all mentioned just this cautious optimism mm -hmm. um i think again highlighting the importance of grassroots organizing i'm really proud of uh stacy abrams mm -hmm. in georgia for instance she's been clamoring for attention down in georgia for a long long time now and obviously in, in the defeat of the her gubernatorial campaign that was really frankly just stolen away from her to for her to to kind of galvanize the efforts that that were on the ground there in Georgia were really phenomenal. And so um yeah, that that's that's really reassuring and exciting about moving into the future. For sure. So that being said, um some of our excitement and some of our relief. Um, still over 71 million people voted for Donald Trump, who's been, among many other things, roundly criticized for his mishandling of the pandemic, repeated attempts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, climate change denial, not recognizing systemic racism in the United States, and the list goes on and on. So my question to you all would be, 
are you disappointed that so many Americans seem to support that direction? And is there any common ground that we can build on with people across the political spectrum? Yeah, this is like such the million dollar question. And I think uh, the reality that we have to face. And I think about this a lot of the time, a lot of time, um, all the time, I'm sorry. And so for our listeners who might not know, uh, I grew up in rural California. It's one of the few red leaning parts of uh, California. And I spent a bit of time now in the Midwest, really adjacent to Trump, Trump country. Um, and, you know, this is hard to say, but in my own family, I know folks who voted for Trump and support, you know, the, 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 their policies. And so what I can say about these folks is that I think they're all concerned about many of the same things that those on the other side of the political aisle are really concerned about, right? Like their kids and education, how they're going to keep a flow with their finances, keeping their businesses open, healthcare, retirement, like all the same bread and butter things that we're like all really concerned about. And really, I think the American promise, quote unquote, that seems to be slipping from their grasp, right? And that they see like they're losing something. And I think like, like, listen, we are all drinking somebody's Kool-Aid, right? On all sides of the political aisle. And I think these folks have been drinking the Trump and Republican Kool-Aid for a long time. It sounds good to, de to them because they're cleaning, cleaning, hoping for something or somebody that will turn things around for them. But the more that I like talk and listen to these folks, I realize like they really haven't been checking the ingredients list on the Kool-Aid that they're drinking. So they really stay blaming like poor people, social programs, taxes, right? Like all of these like scapegoats for their for these issues without seeing like the stuff that we all talk about, right? Like bloated hypercapitalism, right? Inequality, like really the people who have and maintain power and have created this system really since like the 70s or 80s to, to create the Frankenstein system right. that we see now. Um, and I think these folks really are just clinging to an America that never was and an American promise that really won't ever be delivered to them if we stay on this road. But like they cling hard. Like I have tried to get out of my echo chamber and they really feel like this election was stolen and that like uh, communism uh, is coming, like all of these things, right? Gosh. So last election cycle, I was so mad and angry at these folks, but now I'm just like really, really sad, you know, because ultimately mm -hmm. like these are my people too, no matter how much mm -hmm. I want to say, like, I'm not like, like I truly am, like these are my people too. And ultimately I see their humanity. I see their dignity of these folks and they too have served as cannon fodder for so many of those who are powerful and wealthy and want to keep their power and their wealth. So. I don't know. I think it can be better for all of them. I hope that they, I don't know what the answer is, but it's such a cliche, but I think we have more struggles in common. I just don't know what the avenues are to kind of bring them over onto our side um, and maybe start tasting some of our Kool-Aid. I don't know. What do y'all think? I, I, but taste, I, that, taste that Kool-Aid. Taste that Kool-Aid. Like, just have a sample. Just have a sample. Get a sample. Um, I don't know. I'm just real sad, you know, because I'm like, I, you know, like, I feel for you, man in yeah. Iowa, you know, like, <laughs> or wherever you're at. But I just, um, this will not save you, you know. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's remarkably, like, empathetic. Um, and I kind of <laughs> applaud you for being able to do that, <laughs> you but, know? Yeah. Uh, no, not fun, not fun, but 
Um, maybe it is just like, I don't know, like maybe if we could get one of your relatives that voted for Trump on on the next for podcast sure. to uh, kind of like expose folks to like, or at least folks that are kind of in our echo chamber uh, to like what, you know, some of the concerns are that reasonable folks that voted for Trump, like we're kind of like motivated by, right? Um, that, you know, we're so kind of like um, insulated against uh, kind of conservative ideas, I think, in academia that like the only people that I know that voted for Trump are like fake uncles that believe that he's like an alien or something and all sorts of other weird stuff, right? <laughs> so not actual positions, they have other things going on. Um, but getting that understanding that like, and I like how you put it, like we're all kind of like concerned about the same issues, um, just like from very, very different ways. Yeah. Um, to kind of answer Daryl's original question, though, right? Yeah, like, I'm, of course, I'm disappointed. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm not at all shocked that so many people uh, stood by someone that spent four years dog whistling white supremacists. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Trump didn't invent uh, that type of racial animosity. I think he just understood that that's a framework that a lot of folks are kind of like implicitly operating on and just cozied up into it and exaggerated it or his own gains, right? Um, so I wouldn't say I'm, I'm like newly disappointed in like seeing that fact about the world, uh, but I am shocked that so many people fell in line with him given his really awful handling of the COVID crisis. Uh, like folks are hurting really badly and really explicitly due to the pandemic. And instead of like kind of showing up to hold accountable the one person that's really visibly responsible, uh, for the piss poor state that a lot of us are in, uh, folks just were like, no, nope, still not bad enough for me to like kind of like vote against him, right? There's other concerns here. And so like personally, as somebody, you know, as a person of color in this country, um, I kind of read that in a real depressing way, right? Um, like people chose to say like, I want to live, I would rather live in an uncontrolled pandemic scenario uh, like one you'd see at the beginning of a post-apocalyptic movie just to avoid like even the chance of someone taking a few bucks from police yeah. and like reinvesting it into like a social program that'll help the well-being of like vulnerable populations, right? Um, and that's admittedly a huge, huge oversimplification of what happened. But again, as a person of color who watched millions of folks uh, vote for someone that wouldn't say, yo, white supremacy sucks. It's kind of not hard not to have your thoughts spiral towards that. Yeah. Um, and as far as building common ground, uh, honestly, I think that's something that conservatives have to really kind of uh, make the decision on, right? Uh, so the right's built out this big tent that as far as I've seen, hasn't done a really great job of like expelling folks that, uh, want to see different marginalized populations harmed. And so the question for conservatives is like, are you willing to back away from folks like white supremacists, yeah. anti-LGBTQ groups, men's rightsy orgs, whatever, to come to the table and really kind of like have like productive conversations about like um, kind of our shared concerns. Um, and so I don't really see a way for us to all sit down in perfect harmony, holding hands and trying to get good solutions until one side stops making space for hate-based ideologies, like in the core of like what they're yeah. trying to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's it's disappointing um, that so many people seem to be in line with endorsing um, what, especially as a person of color, seems like if I know Mike mentioned dog whistling, it seemed like the last four years plus have been trumpets and, and trombones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think I think about it a, a few different ways. So for for one, I no longer think about um, conservatism in the way that people typically think about it. And this is my hot take, my hot political take is that conservatism as we knew it is, is dead. Um, Mm. I think that there's a new brand of conservatism and I think right now Trump has got this broader umbrella, but if you think about it historically, Trump is really good at branding. Right. So I think, yeah, that what we have right now is a brand of something that people are conflating with conservatism. Mm -hmm. But if you think about human life, you can't get human life back. That's the first role of government is to protect life. And in the the midst of a pandemic to say, you know what, let's just put our guards down with this this thing, work through the population and see what happens. Um, what's the worst that can, can go go on? And to me, that's not conservative. That's that's reckless, and 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 has not just short term but long term economic effects. I think that voters sometimes, and I think we, myself as an academic, can't say for anyone else. Um, I think sometimes I take for granted that people will connect the dots between if you don't flatten the curve, so to speak, if you don't prevent cases then you're heading to catastrophe. And there's short and long-term economic downturns that we can experience. Whereas like, if you've got this kind of like branded message of, of like free your face, or we wanna get back to normal, we wanna like not live in fear, that's saying we want economic stability now. And these other people do not, they want to keep you in the house. They want you to suffer economically. Um, whereas we want you to go out and, and live your life and enjoy your life. And chances are you won't get sick. Nobody will, it's, it's overblown. So I, I think that's that's one thing, the way I think about it. The, the other way I think about it, and it's been interesting because demographically there's been some shifts with who who voted for, for Trump. And I think about my own family members as well. And, especially even my mother, I had a really difficult time trying to convince my mother to vote this year. Mm. And I was born and raised in Detroit and Mm. we witnessed all sorts of segregation and the effects of structural racism right in our face. And what I realized in having conversations with her is that, you know, there's a lot of disenfranchisement and it's historical and it's, People have no faith in yeah. the electoral system. They have no faith that if I vote for this person, even if they look like me, that they're going to do anything to improve my situation. I voted for Obama. There's nothing that happened there for me. Um, personally, I didn't experience great gains. Um, so people are like, what's the worst that could happen? Or worse yet, they kind of play into the what people want you to do, which is stay at home and not vote at all. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, trying to figure out how to to move people to be engaged in 
a process that again they have no faith in and and with good reason i think we have to acknowledge that there's reasons just similar with people participating in research too right like there's been harms that have been mm-hmm. done and if we don't acknowledge that, that there's historic harms then it's hard to make progress towards the future if people are not willing to admit that hey the system has failed you in the past and hey i understand that you didn't gain in in the past but let's try voting let's, let's try <laughs> let's, let's give it a shot let's see let's see what happens let's, let's sample we this kool-aid this <laughs> let's sample the kool-aid not the bleach yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to get t-shirts <laughs> yeah there you go yeah. which i think it's to like this next question that i think you had for us there i'm going to jump the gun about mm-hmm. um you know, record setting voting this year and that, you know, we improved access to the vote in some ways, right? Because of the mail-in, there was also like crazy disenfranchisement um, across the board. But, you know, one question that you had for us that I'm gonna ask (laughs) is uh, how can we continue to engage these voters, right? Like these people that continue to be left out of the electoral process but at least in this election, we saw that they kind of shifted things and um, and turned elections in some places. So how do we improve voting among these sorts of people who don't vote? I wonder if we have some some initial thoughts to that question. Yeah, I think just piggybacking off of what Daryl was just saying, right? Like, and this is, again is a huge oversimplification, and there's way it's much more complicated than this, whatever. Um, but like actually offering folks candidates that like have well-developed visions for how they're going to like kind of help um, these populations of folks that don't typically come out to vote, um, like how you can improve those lives, right? Like I think it's a pretty strong first step. It seems like a lot of the, you know, the Biden campaign was around, um, you know, their whole advertisement was like anybody but Trump, anybody but mm-hmm. Trump, right? Without actually developing strong, um, uh, a strong platform for how they might like help and kind of like improve the life for like kind of younger voters, black voters, Latinx voters, um, et cetera. Um, and I think that's why you see, you know, like um, kind of turnout among those groups being a little bit, um, if you want to <clears throat> kind of follow the narrative that uh, some of the media's uh, going with, is like lower than you would have expected given the stakes of this election, right? So just doing a little bit, a tiny bit more to actually offer people, explicitly offer people something and kind of motivate them to come out to vote, I think is a good first step there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not an, an expert on any of this, um, but I read this interesting op-ed from, um, this woman named Marisa Franco, Franco, who's a director of Mi Gente, it's this uh, organizing uh, home for, for Latinos that I'm a part of. And so she talked about voter engagement efforts, especially among Latinos, but among folks who kind of are historically disenfranchised or like disinvested from the election process. And she talks about how it's so many times it's these vo- voters who are overlooked and then they get the raw deals when policy is made, but they ultimately end up swinging the election time mm-hmm. and time again, and we count on them, right? And so 
this is true for like the Ohio union worker, right? Whose like livelihood has been decimated, who turned out for Trump, right? In this last election and in this election, because you know, Ohio stayed red, as well as like, for example, in this election, like the second generation Mexican-American kid in Arizona who saw like 10 years ago, all of these anti-immigrant policies that wreaked havoc in his communities. And now for the first time, Arizona kind of turned blue. So it's too often that these, um, non-traditional voters are engaged like super late in the process or they're not listened to enough in between the election cycles which we know happens over and over and over again and then we're like all surprised when it swings the other way so i think for me a lot of this i've learned i think has to start with local and state elections um which i think we've learned this lesson from the trump administration that like if the federal federal is not we can't get anything done there like maybe we can start to make some inroads at local and state levels. Because if you think about it, like this is where people can actually build relationships with folks. This is where like you can see policy happening on the ground and impacting your like day-to-day -day life. So I wonder if we can think about, can we get, and this is where like, for example, like us three, like I would never run for president, right? But I would perhaps <laughs> run for school board or something like that, right? Like we can get exciting progressive people who are like, you know, interesting, right, to look, to run at those more, more local levels and think about like, let's disinvest from like, like police and schools, right? Like that's the one little thing I can do. And then people can start to imagine this radical reality where we don't have like police in entire communities or states or, right? And so I just wonder if we can like, think about that a little bit more about building a platform more on the ground. Um, and then build this plat and then use these like spaces that like as a like pilots, right? Like testing grounds for some of these things that then can move up the ladder. Um, and then people can see like what's happening and we can engage people in these more local elections. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know, it's gonna take a lot of work, I think. Um, because I think also some of these state and local places where are where some of like the deep seated like career politicians yeah. live at and like it's mm -hmm. hard to break the system. So, I mean, who knows, but that's kind of what I'm thinking about, like where I'm sitting at locally. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are, are great points. Aside from, I don't know if running for school board right now will get you tenure at the University of Chicago. <laughs> I know, not today. You, Daryl, you can do it. <laughs> which, which, is, which is a totally different, that's a, that's a, that's a whole uh, nother, entire, like, why can't Entirely right? different <laughs> conversation, um, politics and, and academia. Um, yeah, yep. Yeah, but I think you're you're absolutely spot on in terms of grassroots organizing, and it can't be three weeks before the election, right? For sure, it's got to be. Uh, it's take years, yeah. Right, a long term engagement strategy with different communities and getting in front of people. I think I was just reading an interview with uh, Barack Obama, whose new book just came out yesterday, mm -hmm. his memoir, and he talked about one of the things that he misses, particularly about Iowa, um, is that you end up going into small spaces and building relationships with people. And we're having coffee with someone, or you're sitting at a bar with someone over beer or whatever, people find ways to connect with you and your humanity in a way mm -hmm. that is different from the filtered way in which a news organization will cover someone. So when someone's sitting directly in front of them, 
obviously that's a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money, effort, et cetera, to, to kind of do this person by person grassroots organizing. But I think that if we're serious about, especially for people who've been historically marginalized, who may not be consistently involved in, in voting and being engaged citizens, we have to think about ways to to go directly to them, and and maybe it's uh you know borrowing from principles of community engagement, where you're asking mm-hmm. people, what do you really need? What is it that we can do mm-hmm. to better align resources with the priorities that you've put on the table, and how can we privilege those things and advocate for those things? Also, bridging social capital. So thinking about how can we link out to people who might not be of the same sociodemographic status and characteristics, but they have a commonality around humanity and they want to see other people thrive and do well. And I think that that could be very powerful. Um, I think the other thing is, is, you know, getting behind people who are from communities and who are doing that work already. Yeah. Um, here in St. Louis, there's um, a newly elected Congresswoman um, Corey Bush, and she was mm. in the streets in Ferguson after Michael Brown was killed here. And she's kind of been able to be a community advocate at the state level inside the state. And now as a Missouri uh, representative, um, we'll, which will be in DC. So I think getting behind Candace like that, who have that trust, who have that, that longstanding you know, reputation, it's not just a reputation, it's a reputation that's been developed from people seeing them and recognizing them and them knowing that they're going to be authentic. And, you know, sometimes that's abrasive to the powers that be, right? So people, you know, I know Mike could talk a little bit about respectability politics, but, mm. you know, people don't always have the, they don't want to put on the veneer either. So they're authentic in a way where they're not going to put on the same veneer that, you know, the well-established, even among Democrats, the the well-established Democrats are going to expect and want people to behave in a certain way. Mm. Yeah. Sure. And that actually, that's a, Cory Bush is a great example because I guess I I like agree a hundred percent with what everything y'all are saying, but I think that this narrative about like, oh, it's going to be, it's really difficult to kind of rebuild trust um, with populations that haven't been served (laughs) in the past by like, kind of like voting on a national level, right. Is a little overblown because you see like, you know, the second they put someone like Corey Bush up that communities had trust in they put her in and right. That's in St. Louis. St. Louis is not yeah. the place that's going to like be putting up candidates like Cori Bush, right? right. But she's right. still one. Um, and you can look around the country and see other kind of like examples of like progressive kind of like I don't know, maybe outsidery type um, uh, candidates that, um, you know, were really involved in the community and like kind of like had actionable plans for how they're going to improve people's lives did pretty well. Yeah. Did pretty well. So it's like, I, I think that, I guess I'm just saying like the, the solution seems pretty clear. And so it's not the solution in trying to like figure out at, um, what actually we need to do. That's the hard part. It's like uh, Daryl kind of mentioned earlier. Um, it's making the power, like the current like kind of um, power holders and stakeholders 
be willing to accept that that's what it's going to take yeah. to get um, yeah. these populations involved. Yeah. Yeah. I would love, like, we should have another one, but I would love to have somebody from like these like political machines come in because I have <laughs> colleagues who I have friends, right. Who are more part of political organizing spaces who do the, like how to run for public office, like professional development, like things. And so much, I think when we think about people that, in our own lives, right. Who would be fantastic for political office. It's like, no, there's like no way I would ever do that. And it's like, right. we have to re-envision like who these political leaders are supposed to be. And it's not supposed to be these like, people who have been grooming themselves since they were in college to run for political office right but it's like the nurse the teacher the like everyday person who is who's like interfaced with these people right and like everyday folks and have a like you know interesting ideas like kind of as Mike was saying I think those are the people that get people to the polls right because they can trust like your friendly neighborhood nurse right or or whatever to be like look out for you because they've been in your mm -hmm. shoes you know? yeah yeah. or bartender yeah. or whatever right yeah 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 absolutely yeah and thinking of that um that's a good pivot to to our next question thinking about georgia and mm. the state of georgia more specifically the the atlanta metro area is sort of the center of the political universe right now and we talked about stacy abrams that's a good example of someone who was able to do a phenomenal job of developing a, a well-earned reputation and, and being trusted among people on the ground there in Georgia. So let's talk a little bit, in addition to having these kind of superstar people like AOC or Corey Bush or Stacey Abrams, um, let's put on our, our population health science hats for a moment and think about demography. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit about the demography that's happening there in Georgia and do you anticipate more states like Georgia? I can't remember how long it's been since Georgia's been democratic, but do you anticipate that there'll be more formally red states that will become blue and purple in the coming years? And what policies and practices um, do you anticipate as demographic shift in these spaces? I mean, I don't really know. I guess, yes. It's interesting because like places like St. Louis, Atlanta, that we're seeing such big population growth because the urban coasts have gotten so expensive, right? And so you you see like young folks, younger folks, younger families moving to those places, more college educated folks moving to those places. So I think there is certainly like a demographic shift happening that is making some of these spaces a little bit more blue and purple um you know like Nevada is a good again I'm talking about like California right a lot of people mm -hmm. have moved from California to like Nevada Colorado Arizona. Arizona um even Texas like I'm like I'm like looking out for Texas in the next one um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because yeah. it's just gotten so expensive to live in some of these places and so they're like moving west right or moving south um there's also like I don't know if you can speak about this at all Daryl like this resurgence of like people from Chicago right moving back to the south right like young uh, black chicagoans are moving back to the south for example um you know people in detroit too so it's like i think some of these shifts happening because of economic reasons or just other things are shifting these places and then the same goes i think for immigration so when we talk about mm -hmm. latinos i don't think that they're voting necessarily in this next election in this election but in places like 
Georgia, North Carolina, Iowa, some of these like dying rural cities and towns have been reinvigorated by Latino like farm workers or like poultry workers, right? Factory workers. Um, and it'll be interesting to see like when their kids grow up or when those people start to be able to vote, how these states are gonna change um, because of these demographic shifts. So TBD, I'm not entirely yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 And we, a couple of these states, you know, Texas was right at the cusp of mm -hmm. <laughs> going the other way, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least in concept. Um, yeah, so you're already seeing some of these old strongholds um, become purple, right? Um, I don't know exactly what sort of policies you'd see from kind of like a moderate Texas conservative or, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like somebody, a swing state Georgia politician, um, but it is going to be an interesting lab um, for seeing like what sorts of policies people in these like really rapidly changing spaces are, are like hungry for, right? Um, is it going to be, you know, like we saw in Georgia, um, you know, I was reading, I think an Atlantic article and they were talking about uh, how demographic shifts was like responsible for uh, a, a big part of it, but also like kind of shifting like um, Republican and kind of like attitudes overall in these states mm -hmm. too mm -hmm. was responsible. Like uh, they were interviewing people in Georgia about like the abortion ban and like uh, Kemp, who's like a mini Trump in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and a lot of his shenanigans, right? And mm -hmm. Republic conservatives in those states were just kind of like fed up with it, right? Yeah, like um, the because old guard it's just, is like not exactly, good. yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so um, that and like um, you know, like the detachment of those Republicans from where it looks like the National Republican Party's going. Plus the shift in demographics mm. is just like, I have no idea what people in these states are gonna like actually kind of clamor for um, moving forward. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, it's certainly encouraging. And I think, you know, there's a few different things at hand. I mean, I think there's um, reverse migration. So people from Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, et cetera, are moving back South. Um, most black Americans have always been in the South historically anyway. And mm. I think figuring out how to turn those people out um, in, mm. in the polls is, is critical, which goes back to our, our early discussion about what do you do to engage with people long-term. Um, I think it, changing demographics is part of the equation to me. It seems like even in Atlanta, like it's grown so much. I think it's one of the fastest growing cities in, in human history, right? And so, it just can say every time I go there, it it just seems to there's oh I, I didn't see this <laughs> giant structure, this new neighborhood, this new mm -hmm. subdivision, et cetera, all built on like formerly pastoral land, this land that used to be farmland, et cetera. Somebody had to build that lot, build those those subdivisions though. So there's been an influx of um Mexican-American people in Atlanta um, who are really responsible for for the the, the actual physical growth of the mm. city. Um, you combine that with people like many people in my family and my friend network who moved back south to Atlanta to seek out greater opportunities in Atlanta, for instance, they've always had this slogan, the city too busy to hate. And so people heard that from a long, long time ago and saw that as kind of like a beacon of opportunity. I think you're seeing 
similar shifts in cities like Charlotte, Birmingham, mm. you see it in Houston and Dallas as well, where people feel like, you know what, maybe by my own merits and my own credentials, I can go and find a way that might be different than kind of some of the more deeply structurally kind of <laughs> locked in areas like St. Louis and Detroit and other places in the North. Um, so just, just segueing to our last couple of, of questions, we saw that President-elect Biden has named the Coronavirus Task Force very early on. I'm sure we see some names that are familiar to us in the world of population health. So this is a great signal that the administration is going to embrace science, embrace public health, and the overall severity of the pandemic. So hypothetically, if one of you were on the task force, what would you recommend? Mm, Mike, you want to start? Yeah, I'm going to cop out of this one, right? Um, and this is what I'm going to be saying for the next four years, right? Like, I'm going to leave all the decision making um, around important decisions like this to folks that are truly experts, right? Um, and hopefully we can all get back in the habit of that um, yeah. and not trying to all be experts in everything and lead to the kind of messes like we're in right now. Um, but um, off the hip, I'd say things like, you know, uh, imposing a mask mandate, uh, developing new and kind of stricter lockdown protocols, and offering up like robust kind of emergency support to families to like encourage people to stay inside um, and really wait this thing out, um, come to mind as like important steps. Yeah, I mean, I have so many thoughts on this pandemic response, but I think like it looks like I think it looks like the a vaccine is on the horizon, but I think I one of the first things I would do is really think about like how are we not gonna mess up the vaccine because we clearly politicize the masks and the quarantine and now people aren't gonna take the vaccine. And so I think we need to really think about like how do we get Republican leaders or conservative people like in the same room with the vaccine people and be like, how are we gonna make this happen and not let this like train wreck continue with yeah. the vaccine because I think on both sides of the aisle, like people don't want to take it and like, like this is not going to stop unless we get the vaccine rolled out, you know, like we've invested all this time and effort and we've like waited for this vaccine and like then nobody's going to take it because I can't quarantine for another year. <laughs> um, you, you really just ruined like my mood for the day. I was reading like about some of the new vaccine developments over the week. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, we've got an endpoint. But like, if we can't get people to put cloth over their mouth, right? Yeah, like the compliance and getting <laughs> like people to there's like- no, There's no yeah, like chips no in the vaccine oh, no. to follow you. You know, that's your phone, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, so oh, no. I don't know. And then I think the other side is like, not only getting it out, like uptake, but equitably distributing it, which I think is the big yeah. other side of the, the uh, equation that I think people have been thinking about. Um, I think um, the National Academy of Science had like this report out about this issue um, because we know testing wasn't distributed equitably. And so it's by, you know, by design, the vaccine won't either unless we start to implement policies and practices to make sure that it's implemented and distributed equitably. So that's what comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are all fair points. And, and just a shameless plug for us, we do have a, a, a podcast coming up 
and in the near future that I will talk about communications mm -hmm. around vaccinations. And I, I came away with some great thoughts, um, some new information from from moderating that podcast and, and learning about how to to get more people to to trust the vaccine and being consistent in communication there. I think um, everything that that you all said about just equity and and treating this as a serious, you know, having a consistent message and making sure that we can distribute things equitably. And and for my own shameless plug, I'm I'm enrolled in the vaccine trial, so I'm doing it for oh. for science. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing it for science. I'm doing it for public health. Um, I figure for for once in my life, I could talk the talk, walk the walk, in regard to <laughs> <laughs> some public health guidelines. All right. Good for you. That's great. Yeah. Um, so just to wrap things up, are there any other things that you're encouraged by in the election? I know there's a sense of relief, but anything encouraging, notwithstanding the current pandemic, hopefully a vaccine is on the horizon, though. I'm with you all. I can't stay inside for another year. Um, is there anything that you'd like to see the new administration do, especially regarding population health? Um, so this is my hot take for the day, but I wonder, oh, I, I'm even scared to say this, but I think we need to like, okay, Everyone's I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it. I wonder if we need to like abandon the ACA or like promising healthcare or like that is the sword that Democrats are going to die on because, okay, hear me out, hear me out. So clearly okay. healthcare and like public health insurance and like a public option, like people are all about it and I'm for it in general, right? But it's so politicized. And I think so many conservative people are like, it's like, it's gonna be like Obamacare trauma 2.0, right? Like, and so I wonder if like, instead of healthcare being the thing that we start with, I wonder if we can focus first on like redistributive economic policies or like protecting workers and benefits or like, housing and education, like more upstream things, right? That eventually will get us to healthcare and health insurance. And then we can like tackle health insurance later. But I don't know, it feels like I'm such a sellout saying this, but like <laughs> I, we know, right? Like healthcare is so important in this country, but healthcare does not ensure population health, right? So like, right. is that the battle we need to wage at the gate? I don't know, Biden. I don't know, maybe, but I don't know. That's just my... Real hot take. I'm not saying abandon it. I just don't yeah, yeah, yeah. Think we need to put all of our political coins in that bucket right at the jump, you know? For sure. And that's that that's seriously, that's a take that makes a lot of sense. I do wonder, you know, if people are like, hey, let's have like a pretty conservative. Uh, kind of like health plan and people are like no I don't want any of that like will they be on board with like redistributive things <laughs> you know that seems like a little bit harder to push yeah but then I don't know like the ACA and all that like I think a lot of it um is just tied to like this kind of lingering um weird racism around yeah. like Obama right yeah. yeah and so maybe abandoning uh, getting rid of that um kind of refocus energy and even reintroducing like a different health plan um, that's like divorced from Obama completely would be something that makes uh, these kind of folks 
happy. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think we got to smoke know. a mirror as them. You know, you got to sell them something yeah. and don't <laughs> tell them it's like economic redistribution. It, like, yeah, and it works or I don't know, right? Like, yeah, 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 know. yeah. You got to sell it. You got to smoke and mirrors it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see something in, in between. Like, I remember being in D.C. Um, with my postdoc fellowship and I was walking um, through D.C. with Len Syme and, you know, he's kind of like a forefather in population health science. And we were all disappointed because they had just taken the public option out of the ACA before it passed. Mm -hmm. And we're all deflated and we're like, what is he doing? And et cetera. Um, I remember Lynn said something to the effect of, it's gotta get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. And I think to some, there's some truth in that. I think unfortunately going through this pandemic, people were like, we can't survive. And I think we underestimate the effect of say, seeing a check with Donald Trump's name on it. Um, has in the the psyche of the country, right? Um, I think to some degree, people were like, wait, man, it's nice to get some social and economic resources. What could you imagine a country? Maybe that's where we go from a branding perspective. Could you imagine a country where if there was something that happened that was outside of your control, that you're, you had a safety net as social insurance that would help to take care of you. Mm -hmm. And that you contributed to and you help people out at, along the way, but something around that where it doesn't take for people to meet catastrophe in order for us to kind of galvanize around the provision of social and economic services that seem like for a country this, this large, this rich that we should have had for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. If anyone's not watching it, you should go watch The Crown, uh, which is about the like British monarchy, right? And this season, this new season introduces Margaret Thatcher, right? Who was like also the like whole like erode the safety net, like people should be like self-sufficient. And like, it's so interesting to watch. I mean, it's also all made up, right? But it's interesting to watch, uh, you know, that verbatim come out and see like, yeah, man, they were doing this back in the eighties, right? Cause Reaganism was happening at the same time here. And like, now we have the system that we have today. Whereas at one point, like we looked out for each other, we had policies that were designed to like take care of people, right? And thinking about like, how do we get back to that for sure? Uh, another item for the quarantine queue, especially since I'm going to adhere to the physical distancing guidelines. I won't be going anymore for Turkey Day coming up. So that'll, mm. that'll go into the list. Um, I don't have any other hot takes. Do you all have anything else to add to our, our beloved listeners? No, I just hope everyone's taking care of themselves. And for sure. Yeah, yeah. This pandemic is real. If a real is real. And uh, I think we all know that, but like... <laughs> I had pandemic fatigue and then I was like, oh no, I need to like get back to it. So right. I just wanted yeah, to take yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, we've just, we've all played the role of political pundits, which is a little <laughs> bit outside of our typical training, but we have a large tent, large umbrella here at IAPHS. And um, the results of this election might not provide clarity in, in the way that many of us were seeking. And, and frankly, it's been an exhausting year. It's been exhausting 2020, an exhausting last four years as well. But it's encouraging to see at a minimum uh, privileging of the pandemic response and strategies to reduce the spread, considerations around equity and 
treating the severity of the pandemic um, with just that, with, with some seriousness there. So there's a lot that we could continue to discuss and we've already gone longer than we plan to go. Um, even more unknown, but we look forward to, to continuing this discussion and we hope you all be safe and be well.